Welcome to Uncharted, The Road to Recovery, an FRP podcast hosted by me, Rebecca Byrne Callender. In this seven-part series, we speak to experts and business leaders from across the UK to identify and analyse the issues facing the UK business community in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome to the second episode of Uncharted, The Road to Recovery. This episode is all about levelling up, the phrase du jour, how can all the regions across the UK access their fair share of prosperity? To talk us through this issue and offer some insight is a stellar lineup of guests. I'm joined by Henry Morrison, Director of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, an organisation that exists to drive the regional economy forward. Jamie Hinton, co-founder of the Sheffield-based technology firm Razor, will give us the entrepreneur's perspective. Martin Pullen, partner in FRP's Teesside division, can talk us through the view from the northeast. And Glyn Mummery, partner from FRP Brentwood, can help present the situation in the south. I'm Rebecca Byrne Callender. I'm a business journalist and I'll be leading you all through this complex and fascinating topic today. Thank you all so much for joining me. So the UK has one of the most regionally unequal economies of any developed nation, according to the OECD. And this pandemic is set to deepen the divide yet further. So why don't we start by looking at this issue as a whole? So is it a case of London versus everywhere? Are some regions thriving? What's the state of play right now? Henry, if I could bring you in, what are we looking at here? So I think that the, the first thing to reflect on is this crisis is affecting the whole country. So you, you can't take an entirely sort of northern or, or kind of regional centric view of it. I also think that reality is that the recovery isn't the north or the Midlands versus London. You need to have the both of them working together. Um, and, but that requires giving uh, devolution and powers to, to both the north and to London, actually. So we, the mayor of London doesn't really disagree very much with people like Andy Street, the Conservative mayor of, of the West Midlands, and, and the two Andys, who are Labour and Tory in, in Manchester and Birmingham. They don't tend to disagree very much either. So the reality is we created these metro mayors, George Osborne did when he was in government, in order to be able to deal with crises like this, which is that from the centre, it's very hard to be able to deal with all the complexities of the economy from one single viewpoint. And I think you're then left with these kind of all these different problems. And you hear it in Parliament every day, MP saying, what's going to happen to my this industry in this place? And the reality is it's impossible for central government to deal with all of those different challenges, which is why we spent a lot of time and effort creating uh, economic entities. So uh, political structures that correspond to real geography, so the real business communities and their places. And now it's time to use them. And the disappointment so far is that I think, as Michael Heseltine's observed, we've, we've largely bypassed them and, and government's still trying to do it all from the centre. And there are things like the furlough scheme that the, the Chancellor has rightly led from 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 the, the top down, if that makes sense. But when it comes to helping support sectors that might need longer term assistance, there's a much stronger case, um, particularly for, uh, for particular uh, factories and particular places that might be under real pressures, that we need to trust those people closer to those problems to find solutions rather than try and impose one single solution. And I think that the the recovery plan does include lots about the regions and lots about productivity, but as well as more money, and I don't think we've seen enough money anytime yet, uh, hopefully that may change uh, when we see that over the coming weeks and months, more and more support might be coming forward. But even if the Chancellor becomes a lot more generous, which I think he probably will be over time. Uh, I think the most important thing is that actually the, the power and control over how that money spent is much clearer. And that's why you need local investment, for instance. We've advocated for billions of that. 
Um, and I think that's the debate that will continue to run and run about how far we can push that, because national government started off with five billion. The reality is in the north alone, we probably need local investment at least equaling that just for the north alone. And so that's not about central government spending all that money. It's actually about trusting those outside Whitehall to do some of that as well. Right. That's that's very true. And you, you, you touched there on a crucial point, which is about industry specific crisis, because that's also why certain regions have been hit harder, harder than others, because there are pockets of specific sectors that are very strong in those areas. Uh, Martin, so up in the northeast, so which which industries are you seeing as being particularly crisis hit at the moment? And, and how is that affecting the regional divide? I would say that, to be fair, it's those that you would expect to see hit across the UK. You know, hospitality, retail, leisure. Um, they've had zero trade for some considerable time. Retail's starting to emerge. Um, hospita- hospitality and leisure will be able to learn some lessons there. But it's incredibly, it's been incredibly tough and it's going to continue to be incredibly tough for those sectors. I think specific for the northeast, uh, you know, we are a net exporter. Um, which is unusual for 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 a region in the UK. Um, Mm -hmm. However, much of that is actually, to be fair, revolves around Nissan and the car sector in the northeast. Uh, So there's there's a lot of employment and a lot of the supply chain that is affected, uh, that that is, is impacted by corona. There are unique challenges for the region, but I think the industries that are hardest hit are those that have had next to no turnover for the last three months, and some of them can't see the end in sight. Uh, and I think, I think those are are not unique to the northeast; they're national. Absolutely. In fact, Glenn, I'm making you my spokesperson for the whole of the South. Everyone seems to talk about the southeast as oh, it's this land of plenty. The roads <laughs> are paved with gold. You know, you're a man on the ground there. Is that the case or is that is that complete misunderstanding? How is it working down there? Oh, it's a very good point that Henry made at the beginning in the uh, the issues affecting the whole of the country and the say generalisation of a north-south divide is unhelpful. Um, there are there are definitely parts of the south which um, have seen uh, difficulties going back a number of years, um, and I can point to uh, Jaywick in the eastern region, which has topped um, the league for the most deprived area um, in the country um, in 2011 and 2015, and they will be very keen. Um, to understand you know, what this levelling up is going to look like and what's going to be done to help them. Going on from what my colleague Martin said about the areas that we're seeing in this region that are also affected, without a doubt, you know, adding to the hospitality sector is aviation. We are already seeing a number of redundancies made in that particular sector. So are the streets paved with gold? Um, no, they're not. And I would, I, would, I would also add that London will be facing some significant challenges as well as um, home working and uh, the office space um, will definitely be an area that you know landlords will have to give an awful lot of thought to as we come out of this pandemic. So is it possible that actually coronavirus will be a leveller simply almost by accident because it, it, it creates challenges for all kinds of businesses almost no matter where they're based? The working from home concept is now every company understands that it can work, that maybe people don't have to be less productive. But then does that mean that any organisation can technically hire anyone from anywhere in the UK because they don't need to come into the office anymore? Could that mean that there'll be you know, an exodus? of people to different places and they'll be working for companies in different places because now geographic location sort of isn't a factor um does that does that resonate with anybody 
Yeah, I would just say, I, I mean, in terms of the the northeast generally, you know, if you look, well, if you look at the south and if you look at London specifically, there, it, I think it's over seventy percent of the uh, the jobs there are jobs that can work from home. You know, the wealthy typically on average, you know, are more flexible, can work more flexibly if you look at the stats. Mm. In the Northeast, you know, you can't, you know, if you work in a chip shop, you can't fry chips at home. Well, you can, but you can't <laughs> sell them. You know, you, there are jobs that just can't be done from your home. So if you're in the service sector, if you're in digital, if you're in, uh, you know, we're fortunate ourselves. You know, I, I say that we, in our sector, you know, we're the lucky ones. We're, we're mm. safe, we're healthy, we're surrounded by a family and we're working from home. But that isn't the same for everyone. And there are certain regions of the UK that, you know, are more mobile, more agile. And, you know, and there are certain regions that aren't. And, and I, think, I think this could naturally lead to, to levelling up. Absolutely. It, it, sorry, you, Martin, you know, you mentioned about you couldn't, you know, fry your chips and sell your chips in a chip shop. Well, mate, why not? Why, why could I not, in an isolated way, fry my chips and have them chipped out? And I think that what we're seeing is actually huge opportunities. People, when people are fenced into a corner, the British people are pretty ingenious, you know, and, and you've pushed into this corner and they go, well, what can I do? And technology is helping. We, you know, our, we're very lucky that our business has actually risen in this time because people have had that time to reflect. What, what can we do? How can we innovate to take us to the next level? And that's, that's something that really gets me quite excited about how the ingenuity of the British people is, is really coming out. And I've got a great example of that. So uh, someone that we, we know regionally really well uh, has 10 businesses in uh, in the licensed trade. Um, he's had a look at it with the new social distancing rules and the guidance, the one meter plus. Two of 10 look like they can safely reopen. He was looking at this eight weeks ago. Eight weeks ago, he launched sundaydinners.co.uk. He's got a hotel in one of our uh, local towns. He's got uh, a bar in another and a bar in another. There's small kitchens in each. He's doing, I think he's doing about 200 covers out of each of them every weekend. Uh, and he's completely reinvented his, his business, which I think is fantastic. Another example, local gin, uh, gin distillery, uh, you know, really challenging time. Their route to market isn't the supermarkets, which uh, many of us have obviously perhaps been drinking a little more uh, during this time. I think mm. that's fair to say. Um, the, <laughs> um, you know, his route to market is hotels, bars, restaurants, independents, and they're closed. Um, they had their uh, record month in May and they've turned into they're, they're producing hand gel. So yeah. you're right. You know, when we are backed into a corner, I think we are fantastic as a nation of finding ways around really difficult challenges and, and being very creative. That's one of the levers you can pull, right, to generate positive economic activity is to create new businesses. And out of every crisis that there, there seems to be the last recession we saw peak numbers of new startups being registered is that one of the phenomenon that you are expecting to happen now i think that i think that business formation will help um, but i think that you've got to think about the environment that you're you're creating those businesses in so um one of the challenges is there's a lot of talk about how we how we recapitalize existing firms but for every business that was viable and will be viable again there are examples that are not going to have a business model anymore that's going to be able to survive this <laughs> you don't want to build something that was wrong before we have a really low productivity economy we've had a low productivity economy that hasn't got any better since the last economic crisis and so what you don't want to do is just create more of the same problem that you have yeah. before and the real shortage we have in our economy is patient capital so one of the key arguments not just for new business formation but for scale-ups and, and businesses with growth potential yeah. uh, and we've got an entrepreneur in, in, in the conversation right who's, who's really clearly saying that, that it's about how business people can drive this recovery that's absolutely true we're a, a business-led partnership and i only want 
want the government to do the things they need to do. And if they are going to put shed loads of money into the economy in lots of different ways, then it'd be a real wasted opportunity not to think about how you could get uh, long term investments, exactly what the government did after the war and the kind of three eyes business that became uh, one of the first venture capital firms, actually, that's been really successful since came out of a crisis where the government started doing that sort of thing happens in Singapore. We have an example in the UK that does it in foreign countries through foreign aid, but doesn't do it domestically. So it's not completely crazy. And, and Jim O'Neill, who's our vice chair, has, has advocated the case for that. And I, th- I think it, it's got yeah. a bit of traction. So I think that's the sort of thing we're, we're focused on. And I think certainly around decarbonisation, the northeast, uh, where Martin's sitting, doing obviously the centre of the kind of future hydrogen economy, CCA, there on the Humber. We've got small modular reactors, lots of really exciting technology. And so if you were to invest in in decarbonisation and things related to rebalancing, so firms with a particular focus or base in the North and the Midlands, then that would enable you to achieve what you need, which is to to raise productivity anyway. Our economy is far too dependent on London and the South East. And actually, my mission is for, for the UK to be able to get more tax revenues out of places other than London and the South East, because then yeah. We'll have the sort of economy that rather than subsidising economic failure, actually everyone pays their way. Um, mm. And that, that's one legacy of this crisis, right? If we if we take the opportunity of government getting really interventionist, it can do some of the things it needed to do anyway. Glenn, I mean, can you add to that? What other support and perhaps kind of non-governmental support should we be looking at? I do like the idea of local initiatives to raise money to invest in local businesses. And I think you can you can do that in any part of the UK. Um, now, of course, the South East does benefit from um, you know p- perhaps a, a larger resource to draw on. And that would need perhaps some consideration as well. But I think just getting those local net worth high individuals to really look at the opportunities locally, invest in their communities. And, th- and there's some big gains to be got there because there's you know, reputational gains to be able to you know say to your community, this is what I'm doing. I'm not just going out there earning money. You know, I'm putting that money back into my community, trying to try, you know, trying to assist everybody. So I would certainly like to see that. Um, I think there was a point that was made. Um, I believe it was by Henry about, you know, about broadband and ensuring mm-hmm. that, you know, we do have good um, uh, connectivity in the UK. I, I, certainly in with London now, with an awful lot of workers, certainly in the Essex region where I'm based, the, the trains into London are currently very empty. And there are a huge amount of people now working at home. And one of the subjects of conversation is, oh, yeah, no, sorry, my dropped out there. Broadband width wasn't quite good enough, et cetera. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is this is now quite urgent. And if we do want to be kind to our environment and encourage people to work from home, I see that as a you know, as a really mm. big thing, um, making sure we get the right investment into that area. I love that point, Glenn, about getting high net worth to actually reinvest into their communities. And would you say perhaps that this this pandemic has made has made every organisation and every every person almost in the public eye? It's really thrown this transparency concept at everybody. No one gets away with anything. If you're mm-hmm. taking if you're furloughing staff and you don't need to, it's in the press. If you say something and do something else, everyone knows about it. So has this been quite a good turning point? in terms of you know putting pressure on people to be the best version of themselves or to or to do the right thing 
I think we have been on that road now for quite a while. Uh, I believe you could almost say it's a generational um, thing. And, uh, and you look at the generations that have gone before um, sort of X, Y and Z and sort of the millennials now coming forward. There is a demand for businesses to be more transparent. And that that was in place before the or was happening before the pandemic struck. I think the pandemic definitely has accelerated. Um, that transparency. In in many ways, I think the pandemic will accelerate a lot of issues uh, and, and challenges that we were going to face over the next five, 10 years in any event. One of those, you know, being the environment and the concept of working from home. Um, I go back to that, I know, but who would have thought that everybody would have been so comfortable working from home, um, you know, when, when 2020 actually started? You know, it yeah. couldn't have probably been further from our thought process. Jamie, you were nodding there. Do you feel like a lot of inequalities are going to be addressed as a result of this pandemic? And, and if so, what, what are the other things that you're seeing changing? I've got I'm a big believer that we need to we need to join together. So one of the things that we've found has been really powerful. We need to increase our, uh, our output and our efficiency. And up here we have something called the AMRC, the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre. Uh, we're partners with them. So they are a big research organization spun off from the University of Sheffield that focus on manufacturing. So we here we've got like a Boeing factory, the only one outside America, the McLaren factory, a Rolls-Royce factory. And they do some incredibly amazing things across multiple sectors. Now, they take that research and then they come to us to commercialize it. And then those little those marginal gains go out to all of the manufacturers and we, we, we amplify the, the output. This to me is like it's it's like a magic dust of it's like accelerating what <laughs> what's possible. But you bring like these research centers who who do have the funding, who do have the big funding and, and private companies. You bring these two things together and then we, it's almost like we smash this together and it explodes and goes everywhere. We need to do more of that because it's working. Uh, and, and then I think that sort of levels the the inequalities. So there's companies like, say, for example, ours, we'd never be able to knock on the door of McLaren or Boeing or Rolls-Royce. But with those guys, it, it reduces that inequality. So you can do it and it brings power in it and, and passion and forward. And I think all of this is just accelerating the, accelerating the possibility and what we need to do and where that investment needs to go. And do you feel like the onus is on you as a successful business person to invest back into Sheffield and to really kind of make your mark in your community? Yeah. Or is that something that you think about now? Or are you, you know, is it only when, you know, you're a billion dollar company no, no, and no, all no, of that? No. I think that's it's almost like, oh, when I've got loads of money, I can give. Why not? Can You can give your time. You've got to give to get. Mm. So we, we invest our time into uh, teaching people we bring people on board we go out and try and educate the manufacturers of what's possible so I think it can be at all levels um, you know it's I'm a non-exec director at a, a, a business called the developer academy which is helping people cross train so they might into the development and digital industries and also helping people train in say manufacturers or any other company that so it really amplifies their ability and I think these are the sort of things you give your time that really amplifies forward you know, I don't. Why should you wait until you've got millions of pounds in the bank? You know, let's do it now. Now's the time, isn't it? I mean, you, you're really injecting a sense of urgency into this topic, which I think is relevant because we've got we're dealing with pandemic, but we're also about to, to Brexit. Right. So, I mean, Martin, if I can bring you in here, do you think that that Brexit is going to make the need to level up even more pressing? I mean, it, does that have any bearing on this debate? 
it is important to to the to the northeast particularly um, that we have some some basis of frictionless trade, uh, particularly for the car sector. Uh, it certainly would be for the Midlands if you look at you know JLR and Nissan, big employers, big um, supply chains into them. Um, I, that that said, because we talked about the productivity issue. And I do, you know, this will resolve the productivity issue insofar as, uh, you know, there's some some negativity about, uh, you know, a, a new hardcore of, of unemployed, with, uh, unemployed within the UK as certain jobs that existed pre-corona won't exist post. Uh, but I think over the next six months, it, it, we need to having a clear strategic vision as a business and having a reasonable bit, a regional business plan. I think is really important and, and a business plan that's talked about all the time so that the businesses know what we're trying to do as a region. And then they say, you know, entrepreneurs like Jamie, uh, you know, people in the community like us say, right, OK, well, what can I do to contribute towards that? How can I make a difference? How can how can we can f- facilitate what, what we need to do as a region? You know, the northeast, we're, we're great at call centers, for example. We are personable. We're friendly, like uh, our uh, friends in Sheffield. Um, you know, people like the accent. How are we? How are we facilitating that? How are we going to train the call centre operators of the future? Mm. Um, so, having a regional business plan where you can focus on the strengths. What are we good at? What, you know, where should that employment go? And getting everyone to buy into that regional business plan, I think, is really important. Mm. And you know, the the way I feel about Brexit is it's happening. Uh, it's happened in effect, but. We'll we'll deal with it when we come to it, um, you know, as as we have with, with with the virus. I love that point about focusing on strengths. And actually, I had a conversation with um, a chief executive this morning who was saying how this is an opportunity to solve the UK's productivity crisis because mm. once you've got everyone working from home, it's effectively the death of presenteeism, and you, everyone, every worker will be judged solely on outputs, not on inputs, not what time they came into the office, <laughs> not how late they stayed, but the quality mm. of their work. And that puts enormous pressure on all those people who perhaps were always early to the office and left late, but maybe didn't do very much. And that that kind of shifts the whole way that we look at productivity. Um, Henry, you were smiling there. Do you think that that has uh, that that could play into this this leveling up future? So I think I think the key point, isn't it, is that I mean, we, we alluded to it earlier, which is that the lack of connectivity is one of the reasons why businesses won't locate in a place like the north of England. So in the digital sector, I won't, I won't sort of teach Jamie how to suck eggs, but there's a reality check that if you hire someone from Leeds even in Sheffield, mm-hmm. that is a right pain for them to yeah. get to work. Oh, hands and, down. Yeah. And, and, and I, when I used to work in Leeds, if we employed somebody in Manchester, uh, when I worked for financial services before this job, uh, you wouldn't, they wouldn't last two years. And you sort of say hello to them. You wouldn't, you wouldn't bother... Uh, maybe making them a cup of tea as often because you, you, you wouldn't have to you wouldn't know them for that long there's no point getting too friendly so I think that there's a kind of there's an obvious opportunity that if you we talk a lot in the northern powerhouse about kind of expanding the, the travel to work area of the north so that you've got the same labour market as you had in London yeah now in reality that 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 has just changed immeasurably so mm. lots of businesses that we work with are already saying that they've got numbers of roles now that will be touching days to a month you can have any way you want in the uk you can work when you touch in from any of their offices and these are businesses that have got yeah. bases in scotland london uh, yorkshire and clearly um they they also have paid people more to be in london and so what you're really saying actually is that if you take away the requirement to be in london then lots of people actually might want to move anyway um, yeah. and, and live somewhere else um, and i think we've probably too long traded on the sort of come to the north and and it's all lovely and there's nice walks and all this sort of stuff and actually <laughs> there's actually good jobs here when you get here and the irony is that if people move out with their london job 
what they'll often find is there are businesses based up here where I actually might enjoy working and they never really realise that before they move. Does that make sense? But they realise yeah. it after they get here. And I think that, I mean, we've already anecdotally seen, even within the north, that numbers of people moving to sort of more rural places, to the national parks, estate agents in very isolated parts of the north of England, literally phone ringing off the hook, right? Mm-hmm. Because people have realised, even living in South Manchester, they're like, actually, why am I paying a fortune to live near near Media City when I won't have to go there apart from maybe once a month? Yeah. So, the same thing that people in London are doing, thinking of moving up here or, or to other parts of the country. People even in around the big cities in the north thinking, actually, do I need to be as quite as close to where I, I used to live and work as, as I thought I needed to be, if that makes sense. Um, and I think that does help in terms of lots of people say, I won't, I can't move my business to X place or I need to have an office somewhere else because I can't do everything in, say, West Cumbria because people won't live here because their partners can't get a job and all that sort of stuff. I think for places like that that have got real economic assets, in their case, uh, the nuclear industry, but where not all the value chain is necessarily there, if that makes sense, they're part Mm. of the operations, but not the whole thing. I think all of that becomes immeasurably easier to capture more of the economic value that places generate. Um, And also that the the lifestyles that you can give people are are much better, because I think I see it slightly differently, which is that presenteeism was forcing people to commute a lot for working families with lots more two-parent working households as someone who's kind of who's brought up kids uh, and had to make lots of difficult choices about how you do that whilst working i i just think it's a lot nicer to, to particularly for people of working age with families and other caring responsibilities to be able to give them more flexibility and i think they'll be happier and i think that the the kind of productivity dilemma is as much about how businesses structure the workplace as the way in which people act when they're within it, if that makes sense. And I think mm-hmm. businesses have got to have a long, hard look at how they've organised themselves because we had an awful lot of unproductive businesses pre-crisis. Yeah. And yeah. and they're not all, and some of them can embrace the fourth industrial revolution and the stuff Jamie would say, I endorse completely what the AMRC have done for manufacturing in parts of the north of England and, and the wider country has been mm-hmm. transformative. And people uh, like... Uh, Keith uh, and team there who set it up absolutely incredible people who've done amazing things for the north of England um and we almost need to do that for the whole economy right we need to mm. take that idea of the fourth industrial revolution in manufacturing and actually yeah. it's not just for manufacturing right yeah the, the disruption of the working world and how we do things is probably going to take out more accountants and lawyers than it is it is people in factories and actually if you talk to someone like Jürgen Meyer, who used to run Siemens, is on my board, he'll tell you for a start that factories will need more people. You employ a cobot and you'll yeah. have more manufacturing done in the UK. Actually, in professional services and many other services industries, you will be able to reduce the headcount considerably. Um, and for businesses and for people who are in some of those sectors, I think looking at things like manufacturing and other uh, kind of different parts of the economy that have not been at the front of people's minds in terms of employment is where we're going to go because actually those are the areas in the north certainly energy manufacturing health and digital are all the kind of key areas of what's going to drive our economy and enablers include things like financial and professional services but they're not going to be the drivers on their own and how you get young people in particular who are looking at the future going what am i going to do do you mean yeah. where am i going to put my chips if this is a kind of a, a kind of casino game in las vegas <laughs> i'm going to do well this is the time to go into those things that are a long-term bet don't yeah. be, be swayed by the high graduate starting salary. Now it's time to look at actually what are the things in 10, 15 years that are going to be genuinely world class in the north and the, the rest of the country. And we think we'll lead the world in some of those areas. Right. Mm. And this this crisis might be enough to shape the government into backing us because they're going to need us to be world leading to pay back the deficit we've just got, right? So we're going to have to take some real long shots and and real chances in the in the kind of global race 
if we're going to be successful because just doing more of the same and being a, a kind of decent services economy predominantly based in London southeast is not going to is not going to do it and that's a good point because there's almost like a whole series of trends that are just colliding at once from one people what was seen as a sexy industry before where you could make a lot of money that is no longer sexy and the people the kids in schools that the graduates now are seeing that but there's also these other working trends companies moving more towards a four-day week for example the rise of the side hustle what you were talking about at the beginning there Henry people that the mass exodus from from London, people wanting to move to remote places to be away from too many people and enjoy their lives. And all of those things mean that there could be a rebalancing of economic activity just because altogether, if you're working only four days, you've moved to somewhere, uh, you, you, a beautiful town somewhere in the north or, or in the south or in the east, and you've got your side hustle. I mean, all these things together create an incredibly interesting melting pot. Mm. Um Glenn, do you do you see that as being the future or is this sort of just a pie in the sky? Yes, it's going to be wonderful, um, but probably not as realistic um, as the truth. It is fascinating just to listen to all the different views on here alone. And I was thinking as Henry was talking um, about the work life balance in particular and how important it is going forward to make sure all generations understand you do not have to get in the office at seven in the morning and work until seven at night if not longer in some certainly some of these professional services uh, firms you know you know in the, in the cities to prove your worth um but against that you do have the concept of team spirit and working as a team and the need to have a, a good ethos in the team and can you really recreate that team um, culture um, over over zoom or over you know over video conferencing just how many sort of touches do you need with your with, with your team during any particular working month and I will be just very interested to see how it all develops um, together with together with basic human nature as well um, as a, as a young guy I just couldn't wait to get into London I couldn't wait to work there you know to mm. feel the excitement feel the adrenaline mm. it, it is that genera- is the generation after me just not going to see the same things? I don't know. I don't know, which is why I find it fascinating. Mm. Yeah, the only thing we know is it's going to be different. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I do think on, on the levelling up front, I mean, what it, with a number of sectors in, in, in the northern regions, you know, there are, there's, a, there, there's a shortage of good quality uh, employees. You know, the northeast alone, it's estimated, has 40,000 fewer graduates than it needs. Now, you know, if we are going to be able to remote work, you know, I, I do think that, you know, it does open up that pool of labour to, to, you know, to wider areas, you know, skills from outside the region can be brought in. I totally take on board what Glenn's saying about the the culture. And it's something we've consciously tried to do with our kind of, you know, every other day we have a team's meeting and it's less about what we're going to produce that day and what in the week. It's more about how is everyone? And, you know, it's that hello in the morning. It's the chat over a cup of tea type scenario. Uh, but I do think that, you know, it, it will give it, it's going to change the competitive environment for employing. So I think, you know, we've all embraced, I've never been a home worker. Uh, I've never particularly used a, a huge amount of video conferencing other than FaceTime with my mum. You know, this is, this is, but, you know, every day, it's almost every, someone, if someone calls you an audio call, you're like, what are you doing? Why, why didn't you FaceTime me? It's an unusual uh, occurrence. But I think that those organizations where you are competitive, uh, you know, if the the guy, if they are, the employer over the road is offering some degree of, you know, decentralized or flexible working and you're not, then that will come part of the mix. Because, mm-hmm. you know, from my point of view, when you think about your team, giving your team flexible working, giving them back 
40 minutes at each end of their day, giving them back the fuel cost each each month and the wear and tear mm. and the and the stress of that commute. Think about the you know the tube commute in in London Ugh. is mm. I, I mean God, what sort of salary does that you know compare to? That's a huge bonus you can give to your mm. team, um, and you know it shows that you, I, I think from our we're fortunate in professional services that you know we we sell our time. So we record, you know, we know what people are doing, you know, every six minute units, everyone hates the timesheets in, in professional services, but our, we can see productivity has, has risen. You know, people go downstairs to, to work and they'll switch the laptop on. Uh, they're probably not working every hour of that day consistently, consistently like you are when you sat in the office, but that flexibility with the staff and the, from what I've seen with a couple of my staff, lower stress levels, um, I think a lot of that's here to stay and will be part of that competitive mix when you're looking to to attract talent. Great. And I'd like to look now a little bit at what what business leaders, I suppose, across the whole UK are thinking about right now. What are the challenges that they're facing at the moment? What's in their heads when it comes to looking at the next month, two months? I saw you nodding there, Henry. What, what What's your take from the businesses that you speak to? What are they worried about right now? I think the, the challenge is that this crisis has caused lots of disruptive impacts, even if you're not a business that has an underlying problem. So you could have had a business that was absolutely robust, that had a business plan that was absolutely sorted and was going to nail on returns for your investors for years to come. And now you don't anymore. And that's really hard. And I think what I would say is that the kind of the, the learning from this, right, is the is the need to to really understand what will support those viable businesses go through this, because I think that we've got to make sure that we support those people to be able to get to the other side of that, partly because the just the cost to the country and to society more generally of mass unemployment is just not worth paying. So I think I think business leaders who can are rightly trying to protect their workforce as much as they can. And I think that's a consistent theme, actually. But there are some businesses, particularly civil aviation, would be one example, whether it's in Lancashire or the parts of the north of England, where like mm. absolutely decimated. And it's like yeah. you, you can't just give up on those sectors because they yeah. drive huge, huge supply chains. And, you, yeah. and and that's not about giving them a handout. But if we are going to do things like small modular reactors, we need to start right now saying to people who made bits for planes, this yeah. is the bit you used to make for a plane. This is the bit you make for a reactor start switching over now lads and lasses yeah. does that make sense we've got to do that quickly because if we don't we're going to lose huge amounts of very highly trained skilled people who work for successful businesses and it's very hard to recreate those so that's going to require the government and our metro mayors and us all collectively to really think innovatively about about how people can change their business model where they need to it is. Am I being hopelessly naive? Because when I when I, I remember running into our local dry cleaners and she said, oh, it's really difficult because most people used to bring in their suits and no one wears a suit anymore. But then she mm. put up a sign saying you've been at home a lot. Do your rugs need dry cleaning? What about your yeah. curtains? And there was like an influx and there's like a, a, a vegetable delivery service taking all the stuff that used to go um, into sort of the, the, the leisure and hospitality sector and is now going to people's homes. That there, there is obviously, and you pointed out, Henry, that there are sectors where it's really hard to do that. But surely for a lot of places, there is a way to innovate a solution. So I'd love to sort of finish at this point looking at some of the great solutions that we've seen, especially um, amongst regional businesses. Um, Martin, I mean, have you seen any really outstanding examples? You mentioned a couple earlier of going from making, was it gin and then making making hand, hand, sanit yeah. hand sanitizer? Exactly. Yeah. So, I, I mean, how, how does, for the business owners listening to this, you know, how tricky is it for them to just, 
put like a different perspective on their assets and their resources and switch to something that makes money? I, th- I think very quickly after the initial shell shock, most business, many business owners I know, um, you know, did look at, well, what can I do? You know, I think we've all seen lots of local pubs, restaurants turn into takeaways, um, you know, reinventing themselves now very quickly, developing apps for that sort of thing. Um, I, I know a, an app developer for one sector. I, I won't say what it is, but um, they their project was completely put on hold, and then suddenly they were moved on to uh, a, a brand new concept, which was to be was kind of virtual uh, virtual queuing for for actually theme parks as a client had approached them. So you know a, a technology that they'd not particularly looked at, these theme parks had not looked at it, and suddenly they were approached. Well, we don't want to have you know 100 people stood for two hours in the sun. Let's have some virtual queuing, and that'd be great for me i think how many rides you can get on in these mm-hmm. places now if you could just tap and, and you're in sort of the disney model um so yeah an, another business uh, you know a, a fish business up here uh, on the east coast its mar- route to market was small independent restaurants uh hotels uh, bars etc and that closed overnight they've now launched shorter door you know so i've we've got a little uh, close our, our our loco court as we call it uh, 10 houses we all know each other really well we have we used to have barbecues and street parties can't be doing that at the moment but we've got a whatsapp group we get together and we order a fish de- delivery every couple of weeks you know so that we you know, and, and i think i think communities are, are doing that you, you talked about the veg deliveries but some businesses you know, in terms of we're calling it pivoting out where everyone's talking about how can you pivot your businesses for mm. some business? It's incredibly tough. You know, how do you pivot a hotel? Um, mm-hmm. So it's but I, I do think that, you know, there are lots of great ideas. And, you know, in times of crisis, you know, new ideas, new inventions come out, new ingenious ways of communicating with customers, supporting your team do come out. And I think there's many things that we've all discovered during this crisis that are here to stay and for the better. Mm. Jamie, you were nodding there. Just, just tell me. So, what's been the most positive learning that you've had out of the out of the misery of this crisis that you think will stand your business in good stead for the future? Oh, the best, and there's so many. I think just I think it's the realization that uh, technology really makes a difference in a business. Mm-hmm. Some people haven't adopted it, and now they have, and they're like, "This is amazing. Why didn't we do this ages ago?" And I think that it's taken the fear away for them. We always—it's well, almost like we fear fear sometimes, and businesses are fearful of uh, actually making a change. And we see that across sectors because we're not sector specific, and that's by design. But it's really amplified people going, "Actually, we need to do something," and actually, that's worked, which is, which is great. And I think it will set our business in good stead for the future. And and hopefully we'll amplify everyone else's business by doing what we're doing, because that's what we're here for. A really positive chain reaction. Thank you all so much for taking part today. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing from all of you. I feel like we could be here another hour or two hours debating this topic, but I think we'll, um, we'll leave it there and, and talk to you soon. Thank you. Next week on Uncharted, The Road to Recovery, we'll be discussing how the crisis has accelerated change in the restructuring sector, covering everything from the implications of the corporate insolvency and governance bill, fast-tracking its way through Parliament, to the renewed spotlight on the pre-packed pool. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts for the next episode to be automatically downloaded to your phone.